It's Daily Thunder, the truth of Jesus Christ dished out live every morning from the Ellerslie campus in Windsor, Colorado with a bit of manly grit and gusto. Find out more at live.ellerslie.com. Now, here's Nathan Johnson. Well, on Thursday mornings, we're walking through a Bible survey of sorts. We're walking through this idea of the saga of Scripture, looking at the just kind of a global view of Scripture. And uh, we're kind of breaking these up into 10 sections, and then hopefully uh, we'll return back to it and we'll continue walking through uh, this idea of, of Scripture. Today I want to look at this idea of the kingdom promised. Uh, last week we were looking primarily at this idea of uh, here's this king, uh, kings and lord of lords. He creates this world, and he literally, the desire of his heart is that humanity would be a demonstration, a showcase of the very life of God itself. In other words, as creation looks at humanity, they begin to see God lived out, if you will. They're, they're seeing his glory, his renown. Now, we are not God, we understand that, but we are to be the image bearers. We are to be the demonstration of the life and the light of the king. And as we talked about last week, <clears throat> here is humanity, Adam and Eve, and they look at this, these two trees and they choose independence. They choose to resource themselves. They choose to rely upon themselves. Uh, it, it's a choice of saying, God, I can handle this on my own. I'm not going to live by the life that you are providing, by the tree of life. I am choosing to determine what is good and what is evil in and of myself. And they partake of the tree, the knowledge of the good and evil. And now they are living independently from what God established. And it is a rejection, it is a rebellion of the kingdom itself. And what we begin to see from this whole scene is that God's redemptive heart will not let us stay in that state. I don't know who said it. Maybe it's Spurgeon, uh, or maybe it's just anonymous. But I love the statement that God will not let his people sin successfully. In other words, we, we have the right to sin. However, he is coming after us. Uh, the old uh, poet, as a hundred years ago, called God the hound of heaven. He is chasing after us. He's breathing down our necks. He is coming after us. Why? Because he has a redemptive heart. He is trying to restore that which has been broken, that which has been severed, that which we have rebelled against. That while we were yet sinners, while we were shaking our fists in his face, Christ died for us. And that is coming out of the redemptive love heart of God. That he is trying to draw his people and make them holy as he is holy. We are not holy. And the best that we can produce in and of ourselves, in our flesh, in our independence, is but filthy rags. And as we keep talking about the, this idea that what God is restoring us back into is a life of dependency. How did God make us? He made us for dependency. Which is not inactivity, it's not passivity, because there's a lot of action in dependence. In fact, I think there's more action in dependence than there is in independence. But we're not made to live independently of him. We're made to be sourced by the very Spirit of God himself, which is amazing. That this is not what I can do for him. This is all about what is he wanting to do in and through my life, which I just think is phenomenal. And so as we come at the end of last week, here is humanity. They've rebelled. They've rejected. Uh, they've gone their own way. <clears throat> and here's, what God, here's God, and he takes this innocent, precious little animal, likely a lamb, and he sheds blood for the very first time that we have recorded. And this innocent blood is given, why? To cover over the nakedness, the, the, the sin of Adam and Eve. 
Now, we understand that doesn't atone, but it's a beautiful picture of the coming of Christ. That what is going to be needed for our rebellion? What is going to be needed for our independence? The shedding of innocent blood. That our nakedness has to be covered. Which is just beautiful. Uh, as you come out of that, what you begin to see in the next series of stories, uh, you have the whole Noah and the ark scene, then you have the Tower of Babel scene. What you begin to see is these pictures of independence. Uh, you have these pictures of rebellion. You have pictures of this blossoming of sin. And isn't it interesting that even with like Noah and the ark, uh, here's God, he, he looks at the culture of the day and just says, this whole thing is so polluted. Uh, there, there's all this stuff happening that is against the very nature of God. And so he chooses one man and says, I'm going to start over with you. And then with a flood, washes everything clean and starts back with one man in his family. But scripturally, it doesn't take very long for the slippery slope of sin to take over. And we're back to where we where it started. And of course, the Tower of Babel scene shows up. So by the time we get into our story here, which is in Genesis chapter 12, it's fascinating that culture, again, is back to the same junk that it easily reverts to. By the way, what Adam was called out of, interestingly, is so similar to what we live in as a culture today. And we're going to walk through this a little bit. But here is God, and he looks at this one man by the name of Abraham, and he's giving this man a promise. And what is the promise? It is a restoration of a kingdom. That God's heart for his kingdom is being refulfilled. Refulfilled is probably not a word, but being fulfilled or being brought forth through one man. Now, what was the heart of God in the kingdom at the very beginning? Oh, that God would be seen. That we would live dependently upon him. That we live by faith. That his life and his light would be seen and evidenced on earth once again. What do we rebel against? That. What is God calling Abraham to? That. And though the promise has, is not, uh, doesn't find its great fulfillment until Christ, you realize the promise is given to Abraham that there is coming a day when restoration is going to take place. When the, the original plan for the kingdom and what God created humanity for is going to be restored. So let's dive into this. In Genesis chapter 11, this is the very end of chapter 11, <clears throat> it's kind of given in this account, kind of given a recap, and this is what it says in Genesis chapter 11, verse 31. It says, Now Terah took his son Abram and his grandson Lot, the son of Haran, and his daughter-in-law Sarai, his son Abraham's wife, and they went out from them from Ur of the Chaldeans to go to the land of Canaan, and they came to Haran and dwelt there. Now, if you're a visual uh, let me just kind of describe this to you, and then I have a picture. <clears throat> it says that they left this place called Ur of the Chaldeans. And you're like, oh, that just, it's a great name, Ur. It'd be a lot easier to write on your, uh, uh, your mailbox thing, right? You know, like as you're putting your address, like some of us have these long, long addresses that we have to keep writing. Ur would just be easy, just Abraham from Ur, right? Do you, have you ever looked at what Ur actually is, though? Ur was like the centrality of the metropolis of that day, if you will. Uh, this was the New York City of Abraham's day. Uh, this was the Babylon of Daniel's day. Uh, this was the Nineveh of Jonah's day. Uh, this would be Rome of Jesus' day. This was like the hub of the world for Abraham's day. Uh, this is from Nelson's Illustrated Bible Dictionary. It says, Abraham lived in the city of Ur at the height of its splendor. The city was a prosperous center of religion and industry. 
a surprisingly advanced culture, particularly in the arts and crafts. Doesn't that sound like where we live today? Uh, New Unger says it this way, Archaeology has revealed that in Abraham's day, Ur was a great and prosperous city with perhaps 360,000 people living in the city and in suburbs. Which I understand in our modern day, that's like, oh, that's a, that's a, that's a good-sized city. But you realize in Abraham's day, that's a, I mean, that's a huge portion of the population. I'm trying to find a percentage. But my guess is it's a, that's a huge percentage. You know, there's, there's probably a few million people, maybe tens of millions of people. But in terms of percentage-wise, this is a huge city. Uh, Easton says it this way. Now, catch this. This is fascinating. Speaking of the city Ur, it means light or the moon city. It was the largest city of Shinar on the coast of Chaldea and the principal commercial center of the country as well as a center of political power. It was a formerly maritime city as the waters of the Persian Gulf reached thus far inland. And Ur was the port of Babylonia, whence trade was carried on with the dwellers on the Gulf and with the distant countries of India, Ethiopia, and Egypt. Between Ur and Haran, there must consequently have been a close connection in early times, the record of which has not yet been re uh, recovered. It may be that Haran owed its foundation to a king of Ur, but at any rate, the two cities were bound together by worship of the same deity, the closest and most enduring bond of union that existed in the ancient world. By the way, a lot of scholars presume that when Terah and Abraham and Lot came up into Haran, that Terah renamed the city on behalf of Lot's father, Haran. So it probably had a different city's name, but because they dwelt there for five years-ish, uh, they renamed it, and that was what was known in terms of the Israelite culture. So that's what some scholars just presume. But it says that Terah should have migrated from Ur to Haran, therefore ceases to be extraordinary. If he left Ur at all, it was the most natural place to which to go. It was like passing from one court of a temple into another. In other words, culturally, even though Ur would have been a much smaller kind of section, it had a very similar lifestyle to that of Ur. Now, I think that's important as we get to the end of today's lesson, uh, which we'll talk about in just a moment. But think about this. Abraham and Lot and Sarai and Terah are coming from a place that is just engrossed in just the normal, worldly culture of its day. Just hold that in the back of your mind. Now, if you're visual, oh, I keep saying visual and I'm waiting for my picture. Hold on, it's coming. Uh, Genesis 12, 1 through 3 says this. Uh, now the Lord said to Abram, get out of your country, from your family, and from your father's house, to a land that I will show you, and I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great, and you shall be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse him who curses you. And in you, all the families on earth shall be blessed. I'm just going to, there it is. I'll come back. Uh, here's Ur down here. So here's the Persian Gulf. Uh, here's the Mediterranean Sea. So Cain is right here. So this is the promised land. So Ur is down here near Babylonia. Okay, here's Babylon. Ur is down here. So for them to come up to Haran, which is all the way up here in the north, this is approximately a 600-mile journey, give or take. Now, that's a walk, and they would have walked. <laughs> so this is not like, all right, tomorrow let's go to Haran and just check it out. This is like, all right, pack your suitcases, don't forget your pillows. It's a journey, right? And they're leaving Ur and going to Haran. And in culturally, they would have been very similar. Uh, in the book of Acts, it's fascinating that in the stoning of Stephen, uh, Stephen is given this recount of the Israelite history. And it's amazing to me that there are several things that 
Stephen points out that it recorded nowhere else in Scripture, but it's presumed that everyone would have known. And if you ever want to study that out, you should study the sermon in Acts chapter 7. There's actually some brilliant stuff that's nowhere else in Scripture, but Stephen makes reference of it, which means it was inspired by the Holy Spirit. Uh, and we'll eventually look at it, but <clears throat> listen to what Stephen says about this travel with Abraham. <clears throat> he says, brethren and fathers, listen, the God of glory appeared to our father Abraham while he was in Mesopotamia before he dwelt in Haran. And God said to him, get out of your country and from your relatives and come to a land that I will show you. Then he came out of the land of the Chaldeans and dwelt in Haran. And from there, when his father was dead, he moved him to this land in which you now dwell. In other words, Stephen's given this repeat of he left Ur of the Chaldeans and went up to Haran. Now, how long did they spend in Haran? Well, until Terah died, which they think is right around about five years or so. So Abraham was called out of Ur from this culture. Hey, come and really separate yourself from the world. Hey, don't be just like everyone else around you. I am choosing you as a special people. I'm going to start something brand new. And through you, you are going to start revealing my full intent of what I desired humanity to be, which is to represent and showcase the glory of God. And so Abraham makes his way, goes up to Haran, spends about five years after his father dies. He transitions and comes all the way down to the promised land. Now, before we look at that, it's interesting that in Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3, God makes this promise. And if you ever want to have a great discussion, I encourage you to sit down with Sandy at some point and have her just flush this out. Uh, I think, Sandy, you may have to correct me, but I think it was you who commented that, uh, that you had found somewhere that one of the scholars said that everything up to chapter 12 in Genesis is the prologue for the entirety of the Bible. In other words, it's just giving some background so that we can get to chapter 12. Isn't that right? Oh, thank you. It's from the book Eternity in Their Hearts. In other words, the idea is, which I think is a phenomenal concept, that Scripture actually starts in Genesis chapter 12. Now, you have to have the first 11 chapters to give context and understanding for what's, why chapter 12 is so critical. But chapter 12 is a major turning point, and it's like this whole thing is getting going. Why? Because God is choosing a people. He's establishing this eternal purpose. His desire is life. And what you begin to find out, and this is something beautiful that I wish Sandy would teach uh, at some point up here, but she begins to take this idea of this promise, and she really walks through the entirety of Scripture showing this thread, that this promise that God gives Abraham is a promise that is literally being fulfilled through the entirety of Scripture, which finds its climax in Jesus Christ. It is so beautiful. I mean, it is, it is just, it's mind-boggling beautiful. But that's for another day. Uh, but, look, but look at these promises that God makes. Again, let me read this to you. So God looks at Abraham and says, come out from your country. Which doesn't just, you understand, it doesn't just mean, hey, come out and leave. Uh, it would be like us saying, hey, will you move from Colorado and go down to like Nebraska? Right? And we're like, oh, we're leaving our place. That's, that's going to be difficult. Right? It's not just, hey, would you leave in a sense of a physical movement? It's also talking about the attachments that we have with that culture. Abraham is living in the midst of a pagan culture around him that is full of just all this junk. And the call for Abraham wasn't just to leave physically, though that was true. It was a call to leave spiritually that and find a new identity in the God of the universe. 
By the way, that's exactly what we are called to. That we are to be in the world, but not of the world. That, that we have literally sojourned away from the culture of the world, and our new identity is not in the world, it's in Jesus. That though we may be here physically, we are not of the, the lifestyle and the nature of this world, which is what the word holiness even means. It means to be set apart. It means to be brought out of. It means to be different than that which is around. And you recognize that God is not like this world. It is, it is not as he made it originally. And he, what is he calling us to? He's calling us into holiness. Be holy as I am holy. Hey, come out and be separate from. Hey, hey, be different than the world around you, just as I am different from the world around you. That what we are to be similar to is not the world. We are, we are to be similar to God himself, which is his working in our life, which is amazing. So God says, hey, come out from your family and from your father's house to a land that I will show you. And I will make you a great nation. Now think about this. This is a culture that is all wrapped up in family identity. This is a culture all wrapped up in honor and shame. And for me to leave my father's house is actually a shameful thing. Does, does that make sense? In other words, I, I am, I'm setting my father aside saying, I do not want to be identified with you any longer. That I am having a new identity, which in this culture is a shameful thing. That, that this whole community idea in, in this ancient culture is all wrapped up in the headship of the, of the Father. And what is God calling Abraham to? Let me be that headship in your life. Hey, will you set all that aside? And we, will, you, will you set aside all your culture? Hey, will, will you set aside all of your, the, the social norms of the day? Hey, would you set aside all that different kind of pressure? Hey, would you set aside all that which seems right in the mind of the world? And would you have a brand new identity? And I will father you. And I'm going to make you a great nation says God. And I will bless you, and I will make your name great. And you will be a blessing, and I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse those who curse you, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So as you begin to look at these promises, there are seven great promises here. Number one, I'm going to make you a great nation. Number two, I will bless you. Number three, your name will be great. Number four, you will be a blessing. Number five, I will bless those who bless you. Number six, I'll curse those who curse you. And number seven, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Do you realize that that finds its fulfillment in Jesus? And even to this day, we are still being blessed. This blessing is still true. God says, in you, Abraham, and through your line, I'm going to bless the entirety of the world. That finds its fulfillment in Jesus. I am blessed, as we talked about on Tuesday. Why am I blessed? I'm in Jesus, which is a fulfillment of this. Now, do you see the heart behind this? Here's a whole pagan nation, and God says, I'm going to choose you, Abraham, and I'm going to do something so amazing through you, Abraham. Why? So that when the world sees what I'm doing through you, they'll go, oh, I need that too. And that the world is going to look and say, I, I, I'm desperate. And they're going to receive a blessing. Why? Because they're going to want in. I, I love what Ezekiel 36 says. I love the whole chapter. Ezekiel 36, verse 23, God makes this statement. He says, I will demonstrate or vindicate the holiness of my great name, which was profaned among the nations. He says, which you profaned in their midst. But the nations will know that I am the Lord, says the Lord God, when I am sanctified among you before their eyes. 
He says, hey, I've been profane in the nations. And of course, he's now looking at Israel and saying, and you profane my name. Smack dab in the middle of that. That you are not demonstrating who I am. He says, but I'm going to vindicate. I'm going to demonstrate the holiness of who I am when the nations see what I'm going to do through you. That's not just to a nation. It is. Do you realize that is a Christian life? That my life, I have profaned his name. I have shaken my fist in his face amidst a culture that is doing the same thing. And what is God doing? He is demonstrating his holiness to the nations through my life. And I can't get credit for it because I profaned his name amongst the nations. But he is revealing himself to the nations through my life as he demonstrates his holiness through me. That is amazing. And that promise is, uh, is given here is saying, hey, Abraham, I'm going to bless you. And that blessing is going to trickle out to the nations. Think, think about Rahab. Rahab is, is this Gentile, a Gentile, and a prostitute at that. And she, here she is in Jericho, and she sees what God is doing in the Israelites. And she says, I, I have to come in on that. I, I need what you, what you guys have. And do you realize that Rahab was not only brought in to be an Israelite, she became a part of the line of Jesus because of her faith and her desire to live this, to have this. And she was blessed. Why was she blessed? Because she found salvation in the line of Abraham. Hey, how are we blessed? We find salvation in Jesus, the line of Abraham. How are the nations blessed? Jesus. The fulfillment of this promise. And this is an amazing thought. And so here is God, and he gives a promise to one man and says, I'm going to make you different than everyone else around you. Hey, the, the, all the nations will have their gods, and they'll do their thing, but I'm going to do something special in you, and you are going to be my chosen person. Hey, I'm going to make a great nation through you, and all the world is going to know who I am through those people. Now, the Jews, you recognize, took that and went kind of crazy with it. Because by the time they got to the New Testament, it's interesting, and we'll get to this when we get into Ephesians chapter 2, but in the mind of the Jew, God had chosen the Israelites. Whoa, we are chosen. Well, what did he do with the Gentiles? We don't even know, but... Well, it came to the point where there was such a hatred between Jews and Gentiles that in the mind of the Jew, the only reason why God created the Gentiles was because the Gentiles were going to be the fuel for the fires of hell. Now, why did God create you? Well, something has to fuel hell. That, that was the mind of the Jew. Why? Because we were chosen. Hey we, hey, we were brought out. We were separated from. But you realize that was not God's heart here? That was never God's heart. What was God's heart? Oh, I'm going to choose you, bless you, so that all the nations might get in on this thing. Does that make sense? Hey, you've been chosen. Ephesians 1.4. Hey, you've been blessed. <gasps> so you're telling me that I'm lucky. No. You mean I'm special? No. You mean I'm good looking? Look in the mirror. Maybe. Well, why were you chosen? Why are you blessed? So that you might be a blessing to others. That the life of Jesus may flow through you and captivate a world around you, and that they might want in on what you have. 
mean, you look at the life of David facing Goliath. You look at Elijah and the prophets of Baal. You look at the life of Daniel. Look at the life of Joseph. Over and over and over again throughout Scripture, you have this thing where God moves in the life of an individual, and the people around them go, yeah, God, he is our God. He is the one true God. I need in on that. Or there's repentance, or there's... See, that's what should be going on in our life. And that's what's happening with Abraham. Abraham is chosen. He's given a promise. And why is that promise given? Oh, so that God might win the world. Which is amazing. How you see this fleshed out in uh, chapter 15 of Genesis. Uh, the promise is given, but a covenant is made. And it's amazing that God makes this covenant with Abraham. And he says, Abraham, take all these animals. I want you to cut them in half. And I want you to kind of make this little row thing. Now, in typical culture of that day, you would have this strong king. And you'd have this weak little servant. And they were going to make a treaty. And so what they would do is they'd take these animals and they would cut them in half. And they would both walk through them. And in so doing, it was a symbol showing. uh, It was basically a declaration saying, I'm going to hold this treaty. I'm going to hold this covenant. And if I break the covenant, what happened to these animals, you can do to me. That's severe. (laughs) That's intense. Think about this. God makes a covenant with Abraham. and says, Abraham, we're going to make a covenant. And God is using the cultural language of Abraham's day. Abraham knows what's going on. This is very common. So he takes these animals. He puts 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 them down in a little row. And in Abraham's mind, all right, So God's going to do something, and he's going to provide something, and I'm going to have to do something, and I'm going to have to provide something, and if either one of us breaks this, and so Abraham puts these animals, isn't it interesting, that here's the moment, oh, the covenant's going to be made, and scripture is very clear, it says, and God put Abraham into a deep sleep. It's like he hogtied him on the ground, and just said, don't move. And so Abraham was seeing it, probably more like a vision. He was, he was participating, but he was not able to walk through the animals. He was not able to fulfill his side of a covenant. And God, the idea here is, God is saying, Abraham, I am making a covenant with you. So, Abraham, what are you going to do? Nothing. In other words, the responsibility for keeping the covenant was not on Abraham. It was all upon God. And God says, I'm making a covenant, and I'm going to fulfill the covenant. All the pressure is going to be upon me. And if I don't keep the covenant, you can do this to me. Now, traditionally, Abraham would have had a part in that. But Abraham couldn't do anything. He was asleep. Isn't that awesome? Do you know why it's so amazing? Because Abraham got to have covenant with God, and yet God had all the responsibility. God had all the pressure. God had all the weight upon him, saying, I will be faithful. Trust me. That's awesome. So God's covenant promise is based on God's faithfulness, not our own. Why? Because all we can do is produce filthy rags. We will never measure up. So what does he do? He does all the work. What part do you get to play in your salvation with Jesus? Nothing. Because it's not of works. All you get to do is embrace, believe, accept, by faith, and you get to experience it. And if you want to call that an action, fine. You get to participate. And Abraham got to participate, but he was hogtied. You realize that we get to participate in 
and experience the covenant salvation of our God. And yet it's not based on me, it's based upon him. That's an amazing reality, isn't it? Because it was based upon my works and my intellect and my good looks. <laughs> I'm out of luck. But this is all based upon him. So Genesis chapter 12, verse 4, it says that Abraham departed as the Lord had spoken to him, and Lot went with him. And Abraham was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. Then Abraham took his wife Sarai and Lot his brother's son and all the possessions that they had gathered and the people whom they had acquired in Haran, and they departed to go to the land of promise, this land of Canaan. And so they came to the land of Canaan. So here they are up here in the north. They make their way down to Canaan, which is approximately about 400 miles. So most scholars suggest it's anywhere from 1,000 1, miles to 1,300 miles that they traveled from going from Ur up, up, up here to, in the north to Haran and then down to the promised land. That is a journey. That, that, that is a high level of trust of Abraham saying, I will, trust, I will trust God. And you realize the voice of the Lord was, was not common in this day. Assumably, he's in a pagan city. There's a whole bunch of gods around. And here's a voice that says, Abraham, I, I am choosing you. Will you come out and follow? Will you trust me? Will you have faith in what I say? And Abraham, by faith, obeyed in the word of his Lord. Uh, just as a quick picture here for Tara's family, it's interesting that if you remember these stories that uh, Abraham, who's 75 and his Sarai is you know, a few years younger, you know, they come to these places like they come to Egypt. And Abraham looks at Sarai and says, Sarah, would you, will, you, will you kind of lie and just say that you're my sister? And that way, because you are so beautiful, that they won't kill me to take you. Which I've always thought was so interesting. Because she would have been in her, like, her late 60s, mid-70s at this point. And Abraham's concerned that she's going to be taken and sold off into some heron. I mean, uh, uh, I just I kept saying heron. Uh, har, what? Harem. Harem. Anyway, she was going to be taken uh, to the king, right? I'm like, she's 70. That must have been probably like Sandy McConaughey, quite beautiful. So, I mean, just, it's just, just an odd thought to me. Anyway, but did you know that Sarah was actually his half-sister? That really wasn't a lie. It was his half-sister. It was his father's daughter, but from a, a different wife. Just a fun thought. Uh, and then you have Lot down here, uh, which is... Heron's uh, son. And then, by the way, Rebecca, or Isaac, remember, marries Rebecca, which is uh, related. And then Jacob marries Lee and Rachel, which is a related thing. The whole family is quite the soap opera. But uh, there's a quick diagram if you want it. <clears throat> so Abraham, by faith, is called to leave from Ur of the Chaldeans to go to the land of promise. How did he go? By faith. But where did he go? To a land that demands faith. And I've talked about this before in the past, but it's interesting that Israel, even to this day, is a land of faith. It's a land that physically forces a spiritual reality, if you will. In other words, it's a physical place that demands faith in God himself. In other words, what we're to be living out spiritually is demonstrated physically in the land. It is a place where you have to trust God for water, because water is scarce. You have to trust God for the, for the crops. 
You have to trust God for, I mean, this whole place, the, the, the entire geography of the land showcase, showcases and demonstrates that you need faith. It's not by accident, at least in my mind, that God calls Abraham by faith to leave Ur and go to a place where he's now called to live by faith every moment of every day. Why? Because that is a Christian life. That he is, he is walking physically out while we get to walk out spiritually. It's not that we accept Jesus by faith and we're like, woo, I'm saved, I'm going to live by myself. That's not Christianity. That I am saved, and guess how I get to live right now? By faith. Guess how I get to live next week? By faith. A year from now, are you going to arrive? No, because I get to live by faith. I get to be reliant. I get to be surrendered, as we talked about yesterday, upon the King of kings and the Lord of lords. That I am called to live in a life of surrender, abiding by faith, dependency. And that's how Abraham lived. He was called to a place where he was forced to depend. He was called to a place he was forced to surrender and abide and have faith. It's a Christian life. Hebrews 11.8 says, By faith Abraham obeyed when he was called to go to the place which he would receive as an inheritance. And he went out, not knowing where he was going. How many of us would live by such faith? We say it spiritually. Oh, I'm going to live by faith. Here's the man who proved it physically. <clears throat> Just a few fun thoughts as, as, uh, as you're studying the life of Abraham. Abraham's life is what we could call an anticipatory parallel of the, of the nation of Israel. In other words, Abraham's life, interestingly, plays out almost identical to the life of Israel. Let me just give you a few of these. Here's Abraham, and he's in the land of promise. Oh no, there's a famine in the land! I better go somewhere where there's bread. Where does he go? Egypt. Doesn't that sound like something? Here's the time of Joseph, a couple generations later. There's this huge famine in the land. And Jacob says, we need some bread. So he sends the sons down to Egypt. Grab some bread. Oh, Joseph's down there. Hey, let's move the whole family down. And they dwell in Egypt. Now, while they're in Egypt, there's an attempt to kill the males, but save the females. Both in Abraham's time, as well as in the time of slavery. Uh, then there's plagues on Egypt. Uh, if you remember the Abraham scene, uh, here is uh, Sarah, his beautiful wife, now probably in her 70s. And uh, the king takes her. And uh, before he does anything, all these plagues start happening. And he goes, there must be something wrong with this woman. And so he comes to Abraham and says, what's going on? And he goes, well, it's just, she's actually my wife. And he's like, get out. And think about this. The Pharaoh pillages Egypt and gives Abraham all this wealth so that the plagues would cease and that he would leave the land. Does that sound like something? That all these plagues begin to happen and what does the Pharaoh during Moses' time do? It says that all the Israelites asked all their neighbors for the gold and all the riches and all that kind of stuff. They pillaged Egypt and they escaped. Uh, then there's the deliverance. Then they both go to the desert and they spend some time in the desert. Now, Israel spends 40 years. Abraham didn't spend it quite that long. But there's this interesting parallel that what's happening in the life of Abraham is going to be lived out with a nation a few uh, generations later. 
Here's another couple fun thoughts. Do you realize that everything that was happening in Abraham's life was a picture of faith? Uh, in Genesis 15, again, you have the whole covenant thing. That he's asked to leave the nation. How did, he, how did he leave Ur? By faith. How did he come into the land? By faith. What was the covenant all about? Faith, actually. Abraham, will you believe by faith in my faithfulness? Hey, you have no part in this. Hey, will you just set aside, will you watch my faithfulness? But how, how did Abraham appropriate the covenant? He had to do so by faith. What was the sign of faith? Circumcision. Now, if you don't know what circumcision is, you can ask Eric. He'll be happy to tell you. But think about this. Here is a group of people who have never experienced circumcision. And God says, Abraham, I want you to take you and all of your males, and I want you to circumcise them as a sign of promise. That would take faith. Because what idiot is going to do that? Unless God is saying it. Okay, you can ask Eric for more details. <laughs> then there's a name change. And God says, I'm no longer going to call you Abram, I'm going to call you Abraham. No longer is it going to be Sarai, I'm going to call you Sarah. What, what's the essence of all this? It's faith, folks. It's a demonstration of faith. And by the way, the change of a name is not just like, I don't like your name Abram, let's call you Bob, right? It's not that... The change of name is a change of identity in this culture. Study that. That's really cool. What's the promise of a son all about? Faith. Abraham, you're old. Look at your wife. She's drop-dead gorgeous, but she's old. Hey, you've never been able to have kids, which in this culture is a shame thing. So will you, by faith, believe that I'm going to provide a son? Now, Abraham tries to take this into his own hands and doesn't live by faith. And produces Ishmael. And God says, I'm not going to accept Ishmael. That was produced by the flesh. So will you live by faith and trust that I will provide a son? And what is born? A son of faith. Isaac. Now here he is, this young lad, probably between the ages of 5 and 12. And he says, hey, Abraham, I want you to sacrifice your son. Now this was normal in that day. Because all the gods of the nations used to, sac used to sacrifice your, your oldest son to and it was this nasty, I mean, it was a horrible practice. And think about this. God says, hey, Abraham, you just got a son by faith. Give him to me. Sacrifice him. And if you were Abraham, the thought was probably, maybe he's just like all the other gods. And here's Abraham. He, he traverses. He goes to this mountain that God shows him. How did he get there? By faith. He climbs up a mountain. And isn't it interesting that here's this beloved son? And the beloved son it says that he was carrying the wood for his own sacrifice upon his back. Doesn't that sound like somebody? He gets to the top of the mountain. He builds a little altar. He sets Isaac on top. He's not, he's just, he's not a newborn. You understand? He's, he's a young kid. And I don't know any young kid, if you're trying to tie his hands and you put him on an altar, and he's seen what has happened on an altar before, he wouldn't be like, dude, what's going on? <laughs> like, what are you doing to me? And Abraham, no doubt, was... You're going to have to trust me. Would you live by faith, Isaac? Because I'm having to live by faith. And we're going to read it in a second, but Hebrews says that Abraham knew, even if he gave Isaac, because this was the child of promise, that even though he had never seen someone be raised from the dead, God could do it. I, I trust God. What is this? Faith. And as you know, Abraham picks up the knife, and he's about to bring the knife down, and God says, stop. Hey, I provided a ram in the thicket. But it's a beautiful picture of a beloved father, a loving father, 
with a beloved son. The son carries the wood up to, on a mountain and is about to be sacrificed. And God says, next time I'm not going to spare. Next time I'm going to bring my hand down. Next time it's going to be my son. By the way, for fun kicks and giggles, do you know where Abraham led Isaac? It's called Mount Mor Moriah. Do you know where that is? Jerusalem. Do you know where Abraham was about to sacrifice Isaac? At the exact same spot, Jesus would have been crucified. It was the pinnacle of the hill. That is amazing. Now, we're out of time, like 15 minutes ago, but let me give you one other point. <laughs> we just need to expand these times. That's, this is painful. <clears throat> Eric and I are realizing we're long-winded. Or we're starting too late. We need to start like at 7.30 or something. Abraham lived by faith. There was a man with him that came out of Ur, went up to dwell with Haran, came down with Abraham, spent all this time around Abraham and his faith. His name was Lot. It was Abraham's nephew. Did you know how, do you know how Lot lived? Not by faith. For a whole season, he read the coattails. He was just riding the coattails of Abraham as Abraham was obeying. But Lot never made it his own. It's interesting, there's this point where it seems like they're near Mount Hebron, and uh, Lot was getting wealthy, and Abraham was getting wealthy, and the herds were having, or the, the herdsmen were getting, having some issues with each other, and Lot comes to Abraham, makes this appeal, saying, hey, <laughs> uncle, you are so wealthy. Well done. God's blessing you. I'm getting really wealthy. Thank you for all that help. Um, we're going to have to separate. And Abraham, out of, the, which is not customary, by the way, says, you pick first. According to ancient custom, as the older man, he would have first picks. He should have had the best land. And Abraham says, all right, you pick. And Lot surveys the land, and oh, right over here, there's this beautiful place. Lush, called Sodom. Oh, a city over there called uh, Gomorrah. Oh, right over there is another city called Zoar. And Lot chose this place over here and went and dwelt. By the way, uh, it's over near the Dead Sea, which I've always, such an interesting thought to me. You don't build cities in the desert. You don't build a city next to salt water. So I've always wondered, was it actually, at this point, lush and green and fertile before the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah? Just an interesting thought. I can't prove it either way. But I don't have any reason why Sodom and Gomorrah would have been near the Dead Sea. I can't, it makes no rational sense to me. Uh, <clears throat> anyway, he goes over there. What is, what is Abraham left with? Just the leftovers. And God makes a promise to him in that moment. Do you know what Sodom and Gomorrah was like? It was Las Vegas. It was the closest thing that Lot had to the culture of Ur back home. And yes, it was lush, and yes, it was green, and that's, that's a big reason he chose it. But it seems like, even from the text, that one of the key reasons why he chose Sodom and Gomorrah wasn't just because it was lush, but because it reminded him of the culture back home. That through this whole process, Ur was purged from the life of Abraham, but Lot always held on to it. And as you follow this through, and I'll just do this really quick. But Lot grows up in Ur. He chooses the valley of the Jordan where Sodom, Gomorrah, and Zoar was at. In Genesis 14, Lot receives another wake-up call. He's taken. Sodom, Gomorrah is captured, and Abraham goes and saves, this whole, saves all the people. Lot is rescued. 
And Lot says, I still want to go back. Goes back to that culture. And what's interesting is, God comes up to Abraham and says, Abraham, I'm going to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. And of course, Abraham makes the appeal, hey God, if there's, there's like 50 righteous people, would you save it? And God says, sure. There's not, though. Okay, what about 40? There's not. 10? And you know, the, the conversation stops, but it's almost like, I'll save Lot, don't worry. But there's nobody else. And even then, it doesn't even look like Lot is that righteous. But for Abraham's sake, the angel shows up in Sodom and Gomorrah and says, Lot, you need to leave. Go to the mountains. And Lot says, I don't want to go to the mountains, please. Have you seen the mountains? There's another city over here called Zoar. Can I just go over there? Isn't that interesting? That even then, Lot refused to obey. He made this appeal saying, I, I need the culture. And of course, Sodom and Gomorrah is destroyed with fire and brimstone. Lot's wife turns around, turns into a pillar of salt, which is not by accident. Because where did that happen? At the Salt Sea. Now, whether the sea became salty at this point, I don't know. Maybe it's Lot's wife in there. But re regardless, it's, it's, it's now the Salt Sea, right? And there's all these now, by the way, if you go to the Dead Sea, there's all these pillars of salt. And they, they, they call him Lot's wife. But it's, there's all these pillars of salt uh, in, this, in this region. And, and Lot makes his way to Zoar. And Zoar now hates Lot so much because of the destruction that they kick him out. Do you know where he ends up? The mountains. But not because he wanted to go. And by this twisted thing of his daughters, you realize that they end up sleeping with their father and getting him drunk, all this stuff. And what was birthed out of this was two of the most hated enemies of Israel, the Moabites and the Ammonites. Do you know what is produced when we live by according to the culture? That which is opposing to God. And it's an interesting contrast in the story that here are two individuals who had the exact same experiences. One lived by faith, one did not. Do you know how you're called to live? By faith. Now faith is a substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. And if you go on, and I'm, I don't have time to read it, but in verses 8 through 19, it really says that Abraham lived by faith. And even though he didn't actually grab a hold of the fullness of the promise, God made a promise. Did Abraham see it? He saw a glimmer of it, but he didn't embrace it, and yet he lived by faith. Do you know what you and I actually get to have? We actually get to embrace that which Abraham was promised, the life of Jesus. Now, it's... It's still abstract. I understand that. In other words, one day we'll actually get to slap Jesus on the back. Whew, it's going to be a good day. <laughs> but right now, how do we get to live? By faith. What is the promise that God is making for the kingdom? Hey, I'm going to restore this. But you've got to live by faith. How did I make you? For dependency. Hey, you rebelled against that. So what, what am I calling you back into? A life of surrender. A life of abiding. A life of dependence. A life of faith. Let's pray. Jesus. Lord, you are the vine. I am the branch. And outside of you there is no life. And Lord, just as you looked at Abraham and called him away from culture, just as you, as you called him away from family and, and all the ties and and all the social norms, and, and all the protection, and, and all the safety and security that comes in that culture because of it. 
And he says, hey, will you trust and would you depend upon me? Would you put your faith in me? And just as Abraham left and by faith lived, Lord, that's how you were calling me to live. You were calling me to be a branch, connected, abiding, having faith in the life source of the vine. And Lord, I pray that as believers, as we get to partake of this blessing, of this promise which you gave Abraham, Lord, we are still called to live by faith. And you have places in a, in a location that demands faith. And Lord, we are smack dab in the middle of a place like Ur. And you have said that though we are in it, we are not to be of it. We are to be just like you. So Lord, what would it look like to live by faith, by your life, by your indwelling life, to live by your sourcing and by your grace and by your supply and by your wisdom. And in a culture that is so dark and so damp and so just refusing to listen to truth, Lord, what would it look like for a man or a woman to live by faith in this culture? That this world would just see you being demonstrated in and through our lives. They would see the light shining from every pore of our bodies. That they would say, I need that. And that the blessing that we get to partake of, Jesus, which is you, the world would crave to have because they see you being demonstrated through our life. Lord, I don't want to be passive. I don't want to be inactive. But I don't want to be in charge of my life. Lord, would you rule? Would you control? And Lord, I just want to freshly surrender and by faith submit myself to you to say, take control. What an amazing reality in life we get to partake of. We love you, Jesus. Let's give you the praise and the glory in your precious name. Amen. Daily Thunder is a production of Ellerslie Discipleship Training and the Bravehearted Media Group. At Ellerslie, we are laboring to rouse the Church of Jesus Christ out of its lethargy and see it once again gain the stride of the Spirit emboldened and brave. The Daily Thunder video stream can be watched live daily at 8.15 a.m. Mountain Time, Monday through Saturday, and 7.15 a.m. on Sunday mornings. Join us at live.ellerslie.com. Please consider booking a stopover at the lovely Ellerslie campus at the foot of the majestic Rocky Mountains for one day, one week, one semester, or for an entire season. We hope to see you someday soon live and in person. Thanks for listening.